We're going to continue our conversations about dreaming. And as you know, if you were here last week, I don't say this very often, but if you weren't here, I do encourage you to take a listen to the podcast, only because it's very sequential. And uh, we decided last week to begin to um, kind of drip in a little bit of where we're going so that it, we're not waiting for uh, November 6th, which is our 10-year anniversary, to give you a little flavor of wh- what's happening along the way to so that it's not this huge build-up, and secondly, that no one's anxious and like, wow, when are we going to build an ark or you know, uh, migrate to another planet or build a commune or anything crazy. So uh, we began last week by opening that up a little bit. And uh, for the sake of you that were not here, just give me 90 seconds, if you were, to kind of bring us up the snuff and to kind of review that a little bit. First of all, we said clearly that we're not going to change who we are. We believe that over 10 years, God has given to us an asset that is very, uh, very critical to the church culture, which is this small circle, what we call small circle dynamic. Let me explain that to you in case you're relatively new to 360. You'll notice that our logo is three circles. That's where we get the name 360, three circles of influence. And so that big circle, there's, you'll see big, mid, and small. The big circle is what we're doing right now. It's a gathering of people. These are three layers of relationships that you see happening uh, even uh, throughout the Scripture and particularly in the, in the life of Christ. He spoke to large crowds. That's what we do together. We recognize, any church recognizes, that we can only go so far relationally on a Sunday morning. There's a limited time. Uh, people that we don't know all that well at times, etc. So like most churches, then we say, then we're going to create what would some people would call a connecting environment. Sometimes they're small groups in churches. Sometimes they're Bible studies. That's our mid-sized group. Sometimes they're classroom settings. What we have found, and you probably have too, is that in their church culture, it typically stops there. We believe that going to that next dynamic is important. That's what we call the small circle. We, that is a one-to-one dynamic. That one-to-one dynamic is um, it's not popular because it's slower. And we live in a very fast-paced culture, and for that reason, to get down to that level requires for us to slow down. So in order to do that, we must change our mindset. We must change what we do. We can't uh, inundate ourselves with a lot of programs at that mid-circle level. So we have chosen for 10 years to pare back on that so that we leave enough, as we would call, parking spaces, empty parking spaces, that we can get down to that level. We would say right now at our church that we have about 50% of our church, 40 to 50% in that that mid-circle. We want to grow that. We believe that that is where relationships become uh, the starting of a of a different uh, a different path in other words it, you you begin to get a little bit deeper in your relational uh, depth or relational dynamic uh, when you get to, when you move from sunday morning into a small group we call them act groups but the move from the act group or the the small group into that one one dynamic something happens dramatically now i've been in ministry almost 35 years now and over the course of the last three years, where we've really engaged, and you'll see on November 6th in every area of our church, engaged at a one-to-one level, there are three things that I've seen. First, there's a relational depth that cannot take place in a group setting. And the relational depth is stunning. More vulnerability, more openness, more 
tough conversations, but it leads to the second thing, which is more transformation. And I believe that we would all agree this is why what we're here on the planet, to become more and more like Christ, to do what he wanted us to do. And what we're seeing is when when the church culture only has a group mindset, we don't get down to that level where transformation happens at its most optimum rate and optimum depth. So over 35 years, the last three years, I have seen more relational depth and more transformation than I have in in more than three decades. It's stunning. The third thing is consumerism, that when you go to that one-to-one level, it begins to chip away at consumerism. In other words, I'm here just to receive. And that one-to-one dynamic, you start learning to give at an entirely different level than you've probably ever experienced. I recognize that that half of you are, are, are not in that at group experience uh, yet, that, that mid-size experience. So we're going to show, uh, have a short prayer and ask you to leave. No, I'm just kidding. Of course not. We believe that we're all on a journey and that some of you are like, man, I've been thinking about that. I want to know more about that. Some of you are like, hey, I'm fine right here. God loves us at every level. And I believe that as we grow together, then then you would say, man, I really want to take that step. For some people, it takes two weeks. Some people, it takes two years. And we understand that. We can't urge you enough to say, hey, if you really want to grow deeper in, in, in the local church, that's where it should go. So having said that, we believe that there is an asset. I'm seeing it over and over and over. For the better part of last week, I, w- I was at uh, a church in North Carolina and, uh, man, just to see the, the absolute, um, need for that one-to-one level, it just keeps coming over and over and over. We believe that every church should have something that they can bring to the table. And so, for example, the church that I was in this past week, man, I learned so much. Tim Keller, don't know if you know that name. Tim Keller was there, just brilliant, uh, speaker. And, um, he, just to learn about culture, where it's going, where, where it is, and, and, uh, you know, how we play a role in the future because things have dramatically changed these days, if you haven't noticed. And, and, and doing that, we are learning from this church. They have an asset that they can, they can share with us. They have planted, this church has planted 137 churches with a goal of planting a thousand by the year 2050. So we're there to say, hey, how did you do that? How do you train church planners up? We're, they have a tremendous asset that we, that we've been given. We believe that we have an asset because not many churches are doing this one-to-one dynamic that we have to offer. It's a privilege, not a superiority thing. It's a privilege to say, hey, this is what God has given to us. We're willing to share that. Number one, we're not changing. We're really capitalizing on the thing that God has given to us. The second thing that I would say to you is that it's, it's not one big thing. It's many, many layers of that, as you'll see on November 6th. I think you'll be surprised at how that one-to-one dynamic permeates every every aspect of our of our ministry, children's ministry, middle school ministry, how we greet people, everything, uh, exchange, which is our discipleship. So it's not just that that one thing. The third and final thing that we talked about last week is very important. Everybody has a place at the table. We have worked really hard at saying, man, if you want in at the ground level, there's a place for you. If you want to grow past that, there's a place for you. And we believe that that is important. We cannot be exclusive. This dream that God has given to us is not just for some upper echelon of, you know, spiritual giants. It truly has a place for everyone. Today, we're going to switch our our mindset, and it's going to be challenging. I think for us as human beings, 
with the, with the treadmill of everything that we face that uh, Monday through Friday, sometimes to say, man, I, I, I want to think higher. So the challenge today is for us to think higher and larger in, in a topic that I believe is so critical to us, not only as Americans, but American Christians. There is a vortex. You know, a vortex is that, is that phenomena that just draws you in against your will sometimes. There's a, there is a, this, this force in, in culture that, that sometimes draws you in and you don't even know that you're being drawn in by it. And that vortex that I'm going to talk about today is the, it can be summed up in one word, now. There is a nowness that we're drawn into. In other words, I've got to take care of the present life rather than let me think of the future. Let me stand back and say, what impact will I make not only in my generation, what impact could we as a church make not only in our generation, but for the generations to come? In other words, is there a legacy that we could leave? You see, American culture is scary in some in some aspects and, and probably more than we even know. But in this context of nowness, it is, there are some really, really scary uh, dimensions of the American culture. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Let's take the financial world. Back in the 80s and 90s, companies then moved away from pension plans, which my father grew up, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, started working in the 40s, 50s, 60s. He had a pension plan and my mom still is tapped into that pension plan, but companies thought if we move away from the company-based pension plan and we put your retirement plans into your hands and begin to create individual retirement plans, 401ks, etc., then it would draw, it would take us to this kind of golden age of retirement so that everybody could think for the future for themselves rather than the company doing it for them and then to, to build a nest egg, as we would say, and then it would lead us to this, this layer of, of retirement that would be much better than a pension plan. Over the last 30 to 40 years, the numbers are in and numbers don't lie. The results are disastrous. Disastrous. They're disastrous because the vortex of the now. That I'm caught up in the right now. In fact, not only am I caught up in right now, but I'm digging a deeper hole of the now. Therefore, if we could look this morning at the numbers of credit, the, 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 the amounts of, of debt that people are in on personal credit cards. Because see, when I grew up, and, and those of my age, you'll understand the word layaway. We had a layaway plan. We didn't have credit cards. They didn't even exist. I know for the young people, like, what? And they, yep, we grew up in, a, in, a, in an age where we didn't have a credit card. If you wanted a TV and you couldn't pay for it, you go to, you know, Sears and Roebuck and you say, hey, I'm going to put this in the back room and I'm going to pay 10 bucks on it. And the next time I'm going to pay 20 bucks. And while finally when I hit, you know, paid enough on it and, and paid for the full price on it, then I got the TV. The problem with our culture now is that I want it now. I want the TV now. I don't have the money to pay for it, but I still want to use the TV. And then I go into debt. It's It's crazy. When it comes to retirement plans, this is not going to be a financial talk, but I want you to get a, an understanding of the mindset of our Amer- American culture. Are you ready? 43%, that's nearly, we can say nearly half, 43% of Americans have zero. Zero for retirement. Controversial issue, but who knows what's going to happen to Social Security. Ex- some experts say by the year 2030, that's only 
uh, 14 years from now that it will be bankrupt. Some people say yes, some people say no, who knows, but it's not in a robust position, well, let's say right now. That means that when we look at the future, we see nearly half of Americans who have given very little thought to the future. In other words, they're not future-minded. Listen to this. Those that are 5 to 10 years away from retirement right now, 5 to 10 years away from retirement, 39% of them, 40%, have nothing. What's the plan five years from now? No forward thinking. I brought in a chart for you. Look at this. If you look on the, on the side there, on the left side, uh, this is ages uh, 32 by 61 by saving percentile uh, for the last uh, number of years, uh, 1989 to 2013, 300,000 top to 200,000, 100,000, etc. If you're in the 90th percentile, that doesn't mean 90% of people have saved this much. That means only 10%. Are, uh, have saved this month. When you're in the percentile, it means 90% of the people are under you. So only 90, only 10% have saved at least $274,000, okay? But the figures, when you go all the way down, you see 50th, the median, look at that. 50% of America is underneath that, and many people are down at the bottom. This, and, and nearly half have, have zero, but even those that are saving, it's like, wow, man, how are you going to live the rest of your life on $5,000? You get it? I feel like I need to just like break into a Dave Ramsey class right now. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Enough of finances. Here's, here's the point. Let me move to it. A guy named Douglas Rushkoff made this uh, observation. He says, our society has reoriented itself to the present moment. Everything is live, real time, and always on. It's more of a diminishment of anything that isn't happening right now. In other words, if it's not happening right now, I really could care less. We look at a generation and a culture and a society that is so like right now moment, and what we've lost is the ability to look forward, to dream, to think bigger, to leave a legacy to the world. And I think that when we move now, we shift from the American culture and finances. Let's shift our minds now to the spiritual dimension, to our faith, to the church. I believe that it's important for all of us. All of us want that sense of being inspired to come in. I came in today. I want to be inspired. I want to worship. I want to pray. I want to hear from the Word of God. Of course, I I, I get to hear from the Word of God before you guys do. I've been studying this all week, right? But I also want to come in and and get that fresh sense from God. And all of those things are wonderful. But they're not all the things that we need to be about as Christians. In other words, it's not all about coming together in a big circle on Sunday morning and coming from Sunday morning to Sunday morning to Sunday morning just to be inspired. That's not what Christianity is about. Our faith in Christ is not just about what's happening now. That Boy, that was a great worship service. Boy, I love that thing. and It really brought a tear to my eye, and I love that passage of Scripture. That's all well and good. But when you look at the central figures of men and women that God used throughout history, recorded in the, in, in the scripture and recorded in history, they had all of those things. They were inspired. They loved the word of God. They came, they prayed, they did all those things, but they had something that was markedly different. That is that they left a legacy. 
They changed things for the next generation. Think about what Moses did. Think about all those that came in missions. Think about Adoniram Judson, if you know missions. Hudson Taylor. These were men that came and said, man, I want to, I want to leave a legacy for the next generation. I want to do something beyond the now. I want to do something so large, so big that it's going to change the world, not only the world I live in, but change the world that comes after. None of us want to come to the end of our life just instinctively. I mean, I, I know half this crowd only. I don't know half of you, but I know because you're human beings that none of us want to come to the end of our life and think, you know what? It really wasn't worth much. I really didn't do anything meaningful. I really didn't leave anything to be remembered. And then I read Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's exactly where he landed. You see... Solomon had everything. He experienced the now on steroids. I mean, he had, he tasted it all. He felt it all. He saw it all. He heard it all. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's not anything that I didn't experience in the now. And because he became so entrenched in the now, which speaks so highly to our American culture, because he became so entrenched in the now, he became very cynical. You see, the cool thing I like about the Word of God, it's really honest. There's no cover-up in the Word of God. If David was angry in prayer, you got it right there in the Scripture. If he's saying, hey, I want to break out the teeth of my enemies, man, it's it's right there. You know, I, I don't pray that prayer often. You know, there's Mrs. Smith. She really angered me. God, just break her teeth out. You know what I mean? Uh, and if I did ever say that, I hope nobody records it in the Bible, for heaven's sakes. But, you know, it's it's honest. So Solomon comes to the end of his life and watch this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 16. He says, nobody makes a difference for the wise man like the fool will not long be remembered. Solomon, you're wrong. You know who's remembered? Martin Luther is remembered. John Wesley is remembered. Martin Luther King is remembered. Rosa Parks is remembered. It's not a, it's not an accurate statement. He's like, it doesn't make a difference. It does. You've just become so drowned. And so entrenched in the now that you forgot that people do. God does use people for future generations, Solomon. For the wise man like the fool will not long be remembered. And in the days to come, both will be forgotten. It's not true. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Verse 18. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun. Wowza. Boy, that's Debbie Downer. Right? Because I must leave them for the one who comes after me. And I really worked hard. I can't wait to just bring it to the next generation. He's saying the exact opposite. I really worked hard and it's a bummer because you're going to get, you're going to benefit from what I worked for. Verse 24, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction right here and now and then just drop dead. Wow, what a wonderful life. I don't want to live my life like that, do you? I don't want to be a church like that, do you? I don't want to be a church that's just all about, let's get our worship on, let's get our Bible on, let's get our stuff on. Man, we are not Christians, and I'm, I would call us out together to collectively to say, let's raise the bar above that. Let's leave a legacy. Let's do something that just is not about us. Let's do something for others. And then I'm sitting there like, hey, wow, that sounds really epic. 
But let's bring it down to the practical because I believe that's where it counts. That's that's lofty, it's conceptual. I think intrinsically all of us are like, yeah, man, I want to do that. But there are ingredients, I believe, to leaving a legacy, and that's where we land today. What does it look like to leave a legacy beyond our generation? Well, here's the first thing I want to throw out to you. To leave a legacy, our our work must rechart a trajectory. In other words, no legacy was ever built on doing the same thing over and over, especially when it's broken. You see, it's the Rosa Parks who said, I'm sitting right here. That's going to be a difference. And I'm going to rechart the future. It's a Martin Luther in the motel meetings. You say, let's keep it peaceful. Let's keep it loving. But I'm going to change the trajectory because what is right, what is happening right now is broken. And that's the key to changing a trajectory. Are you ready? Here it is. Want to write it down? You must be bothered. You must be bothered. In the privacy of a conversation, if someone were to say to me, hey man, Steve, what is it? that brings you the most angst about Christianity in the U.S., it would be this, we're not bothered enough. We're not bothered enough by the bigger picture things, where culture is going, where we are. Man, I learned so much, like, wow, the, you know, where we're going with uh, with uh, multi-ethnic churches, where we're going with uh, the culture, where the, tr- the culture is landing, the post-Christendom age, which we're living in and heading in deeper and all those things at that level. It's like, man, we must do something in our culture. You see, it was the Martin Luthers of the day that said, wait a minute, it's broken. And we must change the trajectory. Someone must stand up and say, wait a second. We've got to do it differently. Those are the men and the women and the organizations that change a trajectory and leave a legacy. I'm looking at a couple here in this room. They wouldn't want me to point them out. We haven't opened the door yet to, to, to Swaziland. We're, we're opening the door uh, yet, uh, soon. But we're, we're opening the door camp to Cambodia. I love the beginnings of legacy-leaving stories. I love it. I love the fact that someone went to Cambodia, and you're going to hear, if you come to the meeting, you're going to hear like they... It all started, listen, it all started with being bothered. There's a couple sitting here in the, the room that... That was part of the, 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 the groundwork in Cambodia to see lives change that have taken years. They're going to leave a legacy for generations to come. There's another couple sitting in our room. They were listening to a, an interview between Bono and Bill Hybels back in 2006. And the, and the discussion, the interview was about how AIDS was ravaging the, the continent of Africa. And especially in Swaziland, where it was the highest rate of all the countries in, in Africa, they they uh, very unassuming, humble humble uh, couple, and they they literally got on a plane with a few people and went to Swaziland, not even knowing. Uh, what was going to happen. And right now, they're leaving a legacy with compounds that, that are self-sustaining in agriculture and local churches and, and medical help for the communities around them. And they're already building their fifth and sixth compound. They made a difference, but it all started by them sitting in a room watching an interview between Bono and Hybels, and they were bothered. Thank God they were bothered. So I'm going to try to bother you today. I feel like I'm going to shout at you. 
It's a courageous prayer. Listen, it's a courageous prayer to utter these words to God. God, bother me. It's a courageous prayer. Don't pray unless you, unless you mean it. Because there's a beautifulness in being bothered. It's what Bill Hybels calls holy discontent. It's that sacred stirring. It happened in Luther. It happened in MLK. It happened in so many men and women who have left a legacy. It must start with being bothered. We're going to hover in the book of someone that was truly bothered. It's the book of Esther today. If you want to take your devices out, your Bibles out, we're going to, we're going to plant there today. And as I read the story, it's a wonderful story. Some parts of it are like a spy novel. There's a, there's a hero and there's a villain. All the components that make for a good story. But it's a story of legacy. And if I were rewriting the book, I would not have named it Esther, I would have named it Mordecai, because he was the real hero. Let me try to give you, as best I can, a little backdrop of the story of Esther. God's people are in in exile. They they have misbehaved over the years, so to speak. They've just not been in rhythm with God. And if you know the story of Israel, he took them out of their homeland and then put them in other places like Assyria and Babylon. In that setting... There was a girl named uh, Esther Hadassah was her original name, but her name changed. Try to keep it simple, Esther. Esther was an orphan. She had she did not her mom and dad uh, died, and so her cousin Mordecai took her in, took care of her, raised her up, and Mordecai was a man of character. He was a man of of courage. He was a man that followed God, and he. He infused those principles into Esther. Long series of things happened, but Esther became a candidate to be queen of, of that region. Along the way, the bad guy came in, the villain came in. His name was Haman. And, uh, his, his, uh, you know, stature went to his head as, and he became proud as, as not uncommon for human beings. And he set up this, this edict where when uh, he came in, people were supposed to bow down. Long story short, Mordecai, because he was a man of God, like other men of God and along the way, women of God along the way, he refused to bow to anyone but God Almighty. And you can imagine that this did not go over well with the enemy. Haman then convinced the king to write an edict that all of God's people, the Jews at the time, would be completely annihilated in one single day. Mordecai caught wind of this news that his people, because he was a Jewish man, follower of God, were going to be annihilated. And he's the only guy in the story that I see that began by being bothered. You see, this is where... This is the crux of the story. Because in the, in the end, you know, uh, Esther mustered the courage to go to talk to the king. But that's not where the story started. She kind of chickened out, to be honest with you, uh, along the way Mordecai had to kind of encourage her. But it all began with Mordecai being broken. That God's people were going to be wiped out. 
And it wasn't just like, oh, ouch, I'm going to be killed. But God's people and God's purpose and God's, uh, God's kingdom was going to be bruised and fractured and damaged and halted. And it bothered him. And he began to fast. And he began to mourn. And he began to cry. And he began to weep. And that word got to Esther, who was now living in the palace as a candidate to be, to be the queen. She sent a messenger back. This is where the espionage comes in. The spy part of it comes in. She, she sent a messenger back to, to Mordecai. I'm like, what's up? What's going on? And he sends a message and, and Mordecai sends a message back to the, to, to the, you know, the palace to, to Esther, kind of an undercover, uh, you know, uh, circuit rider type thing, messenger. And he said, man, I don't know if you caught word yet, but God's people are going to be wiped out. Ephesians, uh, or Ephesians, Esther chapter four, verse eight. Mordecai is sending a message to Esther. And in my mind, this is the hinge of the whole story. Now, we're sitting here in America, and it's 2016. It's a big deal, right? Major deal. It's a major deal. I want you to think of what would have happened if nobody said anything. I want you to think, just think for a minute. Where we would be today without a Martin Luther, without a Martin Luther King, without a William Tyndale. Where would we be today without a Rosa Parks? Where would we be today? Maybe someone else would have stepped up, but just think about if everybody just keep, keeps silent, that everybody keeps it to themselves and watch and gets caught in the vortex of me, mine, and now. Like Solomon, it's just going to be me, me now. That's all I want. I just want to live a good life. I want to arrive through the gates of death safely. And man, that's all my life. Just think about where we would be as a culture. Our culture, I was reading about the American Revolutionary War. We're going to see, see some things from that later. But I'm like, wow, these guys, where would we be from now, right now, had someone not stepped up? It's so important for us as Christians to re, re-engage and say, man, it's not about how much I can learn, how much I can know, how much I can worship. It's about God. Why have you put me on the planet? And let's together leave a legacy. Watch what happens. Mordecai, he gave the, in, in Esther 4, 8, he also gave the messenger a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and explain it to her. And here it is. And he told the messenger, urge Esther to go. Urge Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Now, it sounds strange in our culture, but even Esther, who had a high position, a candidate as a king, couldn't just go strolling into the king's you know, oval office. It, it would bring on death. So this was a very, very risky thing for Mordecai to say, hey, I'm urging you to go, 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 right? And I love that's why he is the hero of the story, because he was bothered. He said, I'm urging you, you've got to do this. you got to go. So he urged her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead. All right, let me switch gears. I mean, again, lofty. Let's bring it right into our, our backyard. Let's talk about the, the church culture I love the church. Man, if I didn't love God's church, I'd never be bothered. I'm like, hey, it's all right. But let me talk to you about the trends. Numbers don't lie, okay? Now, we're going to go in the classroom for about five minutes. So if you're tired, you want to catch a nap, that'd be a good time to, to grab one right now. 
We're going to look at some numbers. Any, any person that takes, that collects numbers will tell us that, that mainline denominations are dying. And, but that sounds like, you know, kind of a bummer news, but there are other great things that are happening in the church world. So I brought some, some, uh, some stats with you, uh, with me today. This is mainline. You probably may not be able to read the numbers on the bottom from 1972 to roughly 2014. This is mainline denomination affiliation on the top and church attendance on the bottom. You don't even need the numbers. You can see that it's slanted down pretty dramatically, right? This is, this is what's happening in mainline denominations in America right now. Okay. Let's go to the next one. However, the good news is not, not for mainline denominations actually, but the good news is that this is churchgoers who are on the top Evangelical, in other words, they're not in a denominational church, but the bottom line is denominational churches. So here's, here's what the figure looks like, right? One's going up, one's going down. Just to kind of give you. Now, let's look at uh, millennials. In the next one, millennials from 18 to 29 years old, you can see uh, the dramatic decline, right? Anybody bother? Okay. All right, here's the last one. Here, this is stunning. Watch this. Kaboom! Does <laughs> that say 428.7%? All right, all the, all the lines on the bottom that are flat and going down are denominations. The top line are, is, are non-denominational churches. Okay, here's what this means. Because we're looking like, oh, cool, nice. Let's sing a song. <laughs> but you have to... You have to be able to read that and not jump up and down too much yet about that number. Here's what, here's what I mean. The denominational church in America played a critical role in developing Christians in, in the history of our country. What I mean by that is, back in the day, they called it Christian education. They did a good job with Sunday school, adult Sunday school, etc. They educated people in more of a way than we're doing in the contemporary church. In the contemporary church, we can kind of fall to more of a shallowness. I think everybody knows what I'm saying. A user-friendliness that when you go to ask the average person, hey, tell me about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means, you'd be stunned. Denominational churches had a, a phase that they did wonderful church planting. When I look at that, I'm like, wow, the burden of weight is upon us. In other words, we must plant churches. We can't say, well, the denominations are going to do that because they're, they're slipping down uh, across the board. No exceptions. Now we're like, wow, these are non-denominational churches, but be careful. Here's the tough thing I'm going to say. Be careful that it's not that we're just replicating and growing bigger, but we have to ask ourselves what we're replicating, right? If I'm making, if I'm saying, hey, we're going to do nutrition and we're going to make more, more, more meals, but if I'm making, you know, cookies, then you understand, they're like, well, that's not just because we, there's more. It doesn't mean it's better. Are you tracking? And I'm trying to say this in the most kindness of way and in a way that's energizing us. Listen, the burden is upon us 
to become that part of the multiplying for generations to come, not only in planting churches, but planting churches where the word of God is delivered in truth and not watered down and delivered in such a way that there's life change and that it can be delivered in such a way that people are really growing and changing and coming to Christ and becoming more than infants because the kingdom of Christ cannot be advanced with an infantry of infants. Does that make sense? And I love the church. It's why I'm bothered. People ask me, hey, Steve, how you doing? You want the real answer or you just want, hey, I'm doing great. Real answer, I'm bothered in the most beautiful of ways. I lay awake at night. I see a leader in our community, this in our room today. We just we had a meeting and we sit and we cry at times because we're bothered. We're bothered by those that are being left out. We're bothered by those who say no to church forever. We're bothered by segregated churches on Sunday morning. We're bothered. We're bothered. So come on in and be bothered with us. I feel like I'm yelling a lot. Man, let's get bothered for the kingdom of Christ. I want our church to leave a legacy. And to change a trajectory that I believe we can because we have something to offer. There it is. It's not just learning facts about the Bible. The delivery system is very important. So I believe that when we look at our identification, it's the very thing that Jesus prayed for in John seventeen twenty. This is a key verse of our church, if you're just getting to know us. Jesus prayed for himself in John 17. He then prayed for the the 12 disciples that were close to him. And then he prayed for us. Watch. John 17, 20. He says, my prayer is not for the 12 disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me and their message. He's now 2,000 years ago praying for us. Very, very incredible. He says, I pray that they may be one, Father, just as you are on me and I am in you. What Christ is praying for is not this massive unity where we all hold hands in some ecumenical movement and, and sing Kumbaya. He's saying, I'm praying that they will experience a level of relational depth, Father, like you and I have had. That's what he's saying. I pray that they'll be one, Father, just like you and I are one. That they'll be between two beings. I'm praying, God, that they will get to this level because when you get to this level, things change. And I'm so afraid of that number that looks at like 428,000 uh, or 428% church growth in non-denominational churches. It scares me to death. Because I'm like, wow, man, we don't want to grow big and shallow. It will not advance the kingdom of Christ. He says, I'm, I'm praying this. And then he says, may they also be in us. And if they reach this level of relational depth with one another and with God, then the world may believe that you had sent them. Why? You see, Jesus had this relationship with the Father that was of such a deep dimension 
that it changed the trajectory of the world. When people saw that and saw that, they're like, wow, man, you have got this tightness here. You got this tight relationship with your disciples. That is so far different than the religion we've been used to. And I believe firmly and have seen over the last three years that we can break the, and shatter the barrier of congeniality in church and we can get down to this level because the world does not have that level of depth relationally or with God. And that is our identification. We can't lose it. John 13, 35, Jesus says, I have a new trajectory for you, a new command. He says again, just as I have loved you, which is deep and honest and transparent, so you must love one another. And by this, not by your vast knowledge, not because of you, you've mastered apologetics, which are all good things, but by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The first thing to leave a legacy is to rechart a trajectory. Second thing, quickly. If we are going to leave a legacy, we must understand that our work will extend beyond our lifetime. Martin Luther's work was not finished when he died. Martin Luther King's work was not finished when he died. It's still not finished. He understood that our work is not finished. We can't finish it in this generation. And when I began to read more about this, to be honest with you, this was my reaction. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God, teenagers, that you're going to carry the baton. And this is not a single generation work we're trying to accomplish. This dream that we're trying to accomplish, think about it, to change the trajectory and to invigorate Christianity in the U.S., Dude, we can't do that in 30 years. That's a long-term dream. Mark Batterson, I've just finished his book, wonderful book called Chase the Line. He writes this. Legacy is not measured by what you accomplish during your lifespan. Legacy is measured by the lives that are affected by your life long after you're gone. I was reading about the American Revolutionary War, as I mentioned earlier. And specifically, I was, I was, reading about the first major war after the Declaration of Independence was signed in July, uh, on July 4th, 1776. In August 1776, there was what's called now the, the Battle of Long Island. Some people call it the Battle of Brooklyn or the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. Washington lost that battle. But he understood that he was not just fighting one battle on that particular day. He understood something far more reaching. I'm moved when I read the details of that 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 battle they lost uh hundreds of men that day in, in in that battle it was a very short battle but it was intense and before the battle washington turned to his collective army and he looked them in the eye and he said these words the fate of unborn millions will now depend under god on the courage and the conduct of this army you see washington was a legacy liver a lever he was a, he was a visionary. He understood that we're not just fighting today, boys. We're fighting for those unborn millions that are coming after. He understood that this work will probably not be accomplished in our lifetime. 150 years later, Abraham Lincoln, same thing. He was shooting for the, the, the passing of the 13th Amendment, the abolition of uh, slavery. And they were, they were short of two votes. And he went to the Republican caucus and he uttered these words, the abolition of slavery by constitutional provision settles the fate for all time. 
not only of the millions that are now in bondage, but of unborn millions to come, a measure of such importance that those two votes must be procured. He was bothered. He was bothered, and he understood that that vote on that day not only affected the people in in that generation, but unborn millions to come. That's what it takes for us. So when we lay out this dream, we think, oh, my goodness, it can never be done in our lifetime. Exactly. It never has been. I'll remind you that God always introduces himself in the Old Testament as a three-generational God. Hi, don't know if you know me, but I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's a long-term, multi-generational God. This brings huge relief to me. Back to Batterson's book, Chase the Line. Whatever God is doing in us here and now, he's doing for the third and fourth generation. The dream God has given you is the seed of something he wants to do. Listen, a hundred years from now, how'd you like to be part of a plan that maybe doesn't really kick in until a hundred years from now? You know what it requires? Being selfless. He wants to do what he wants to do in a hundred years from now. You won't likely be around to witness it, but others are going to reap where you haven't sown because of your faithfulness. It is the antithesis of Solomon's heart. It cares about others. Finally and quickly, the final one is this. If you want to leave a legacy, the task must be daunting. Let's change Cambodia. Okay, sure, you want to do that by next Thursday? Let's change Swaziland. Let's make an impact. Let's invigorate Christianity in the United States of America and beyond. Like, wow, really? That's daunting, absolutely daunting. Now we have these famous words of Mordecai. As he sends a message to his cousin, Esther, they're now... If you know the Bible, quite well known. He says to Esther in Esther 4.14, Esther, listen, if you don't want to do anything, God will send help somewhere else. Don't know if you want to be part of the plan. If you don't want to be part of the plan, no problem. God's going to work it out. If you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's uh, father's family, that's it. You're not going to go down in the history books. You're going to perish. And who knows, Esther, but you have come to a royal position. Here it is. For such a time as this. Right now. So this question that was, that Mark Batterson asks in his book, Chase the Line, I ask to you right now. What are you doing today? What can we do as a church today that will make a difference? 100 years from now. That's the kind of dream I want to be a part of. Richard Halverson was um, the chaplain for the United States Senate for a number of years. And he told this story. And he was speaking at that time to all men. So we're a mixed gender crowd, so I'll broaden it a bit. At the end of your life, you're going to meet an old man. Or if you're a woman, you're going to meet an old woman. You're going to meet an old person. And you're going to look them in the eye. Every single one of you. You're going to look them in the eye. And that person will be the composite 
of all that has been done. And you will either look at that person and say, wow, that's amazing, or, hmm, that, that's disappointing. You know who that person is? It's you. At the end of our life, we'll look at that, the composite of our life, and I don't know about you, but I want to I be a legacy lever and tee up for the next generation and the one after that something that will absolutely impact the kingdom of God. Are you in? Father, we're certainly not called Christians for just the now, God. Can we take a moment to ask your forgiveness for the lack of being bothered, perhaps, for the lack of leaning forward, for the lack of deep care for those who will live if we're still around a hundred years from now. God, forgive us for, for our inadvertent analysis. But God, we have more runway, whether we are 57, 87, or 16. And in this time, God, on this planet, we want to be more than just living for ourselves, even spiritually. So, Father, today I'm specifically going to pray for our church and pray, God, that you would help us to recalibrate our minds and our hearts. It's impossible, God, without the power of your Holy Spirit elevating our minds and our hearts. We pray for this city. We pray for our part in this city to ask ourselves what legacy will be left. We pray for our country. We pray for American Christianity here in the United States, God. What role could we play? What asset do we have to offer that would invigorate, God, your people? Father, it is an absolute privilege to be called a Christ follower and pray that we'll fill the weight of the baton that it is in our hands. By all indications, God, it it, it seems that, Father, you are doing some very new things. Help us, God, not to be lazy. Now, Father, together as Christians, as Christ followers, those who have been the great recipients, Father, of your grace and love, before we leave, we'd be remiss if we don't pray for those in our room that are looking in to the faith of of Christianity, they're figuring out you and God trying to figure out what it means to even connect to you, God, because this has been fairly heavy today. But we'd be remiss if we didn't pray together with them and for them. So, Father, we are thankful that Jesus was bothered enough to come to earth, bothered by our helplessness, 
and sin. To die on a cross, to give his blood, to change the trajectory of the human race. And God, you just did not do that collectively, but you did it for every individual human being. If you're sitting here today and you're without Christ in your life, God loved you so much, so deeply, bothered so deeply by the, by the helplessness that you can't overcome the brokenness and the fractures and the sin that he came for you. He died for you so that every single mistake and sin and fracture would never be remembered in heaven. Christ loved you enough that if you by simple faith reach out and exchange your old life for his new one, he will come and ignite a new life in you. So we pray for you now. We pray, Father, that you would allow those in this room who are searching for you in the most simple and raw way say to you, God, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I want a new beginning. I want Christ. And I depend on him completely. That's what we're praying for that intersection of your life. Now, Father, we end this day, God, thankful, worshipful, and hopefully, God, in the most sacred of ways, bothered. I'm going to say it, God, out loud. Bother me. I'm going to say it out loud, God. Bother this church for the kingdom of Christ. Amen.